0: Hello and welcome to a very special Not A Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but not here. Oh no, not here. I'm your host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My co-host Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work-related reasons. Soon as he's back, which we expect will be around late July, early August, we'll be resuming the regular weekly podcast with A Storm of Swords. Until then, I'll be putting out weekly episodes with rotating guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as audio and text posts of my own. And I'm very happy to welcome on my guest for this episode. Yogi, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me, man. Uh, really great to be here. Big fan of the the podcast, of course, for a long time. Uh, big fan of the Girls Gone Canon podcast as well, which I'm somewhat connected with. So I'm really glad that this worked <laughs> out. Really glad to... Uh, help out i know i'm i can't replace jeff but i'll, I'll do my best <laughs> to fill in
0: so we're going to be uh talking today about a topic i know interests both of us a great deal and that is the topic of dragons and uh so before we get into anything specific to a song of ice and fire i wanted to start by asking why why do you like dragons what, what first got you interested in dragons when you were a kid
1: i mean it's that's quite a question because uh, a lot of people have been trying to figure that one out why are people so fascinated <laughs> with with dragons? It, it goes back all the way to people theorizing that it's got something to do with like primal fears of of lizards and reptilians. That this is somewhat that is that the dragon is sort of this combination of of all things that humans are afraid of: fire, flying <laughs> creatures, lizards. Um, this idea of of uh, you know serpents. It's a very religious thing as well. And, and so, but obviously that's not what me, That might be like some, some subconscious thing. But I think when I was a kid, I just kind of, I don't know, there's just something cool about <laughs> dragons. Uh, I think a lot of children like dinosaurs and a dragon is mm-hmm. kind of a natural, the dinosaurs are kind of like the gateway drug <laughs> to be into dragons. <laughs> I saw Jurassic Park when I was a kid. So I really like dinosaurs. And then, yeah, dragons they are just, they're in a lot of stories that are great. And so you kind of fall in love with them. Uh, there's this really great quote by J.R.R. R. Tolkien, who obviously, not only did he create one of the best dragons ever, Smaug, but he also wrote a lot about dragons and thought a lot about them. And he had this quote that said, whatever dim origin he has in prehistoric facts or fears, the dragon, as we have him in legend, is one of the more potent creations of men's imagination. And that sums it up pretty well, I think, the dragon. It's just such a great, imaginative thing. There's a reason it's stuck around and is still so popular. I mean, there's so many mythological creatures out there. So the fact that the dragon has been around for centuries and still is so popular in TV, movies, books and everything just kind of speaks to the the fascination that like readers and writers have have for it.
0: Yeah, I love what you said about dinosaurs. I think that's really true, especially at a certain young age, that those two fascinations go hand in hand, that you want to... Uh, imagine these prehistoric creatures that roamed the land and and were either fearsome or just beautiful, and dragons kind of scratch that same itch with the added edge of of mythology so they can just they can exist in your imagination and they can they can be what you want them to be and I also agree that they combine a lot of fears in this way, and I think for kids there's an appeal to creatures that help you process those fears in a in a way that feels at least somewhat safe. And I think dr- dragons are really good for that, for, for dealing with any kind of fear of being, you know, attacked or eaten as, as, <laughs> as kids do a lot when they read stories. Dragons are, are really powerful for that. And yeah, they're, they're just – they're viscerally huge and awesome and, you know, they, they often show up at the end of stories or as the final boss of video games. So, every, the way they're introduced tends to be framed as you've been waiting to see this creature the whole time. So, I think that that sets a certain awe in when you're young. I think then, and yeah, I think maybe that's why, you know, kids know dragons, but they don't know griffins as you know automatically off the top of their head as well. Talking
1: about childhood, uh, just to maybe go over some of the dragons that I enjoyed when I was young. Uh, there's obviously the the Draco from Dragonheart, which is a movie that I don't remember really anything other than the dragon. I <laughs> I saw it when I was a, I was a you're very not young alone. Child. And I really only watched it because it had a dragon in it, and I found that kind of fascinating. I know mm-hmm. now, thinking back, I know that David Thewlis is in it.
0: I couldn't name a scene it in it that doesn't things. isn't about the dragons. If, if yeah, I was thinking, trying to think of one, and I was like, no, that's the Princess Bride. <laughs> that's not Dragonheart. Could, couldn't tell you, but yeah, I watched it for the same reason. That pull of the dragon—that's
1: a whole different thing. And then there's um, another one that's stuck in my mind is the the dragon that Maleficent turns into at the end of Sleeping Beauty. Uh, another movie that i couldn't tell you <laughs> anything about
0: oh yeah i remember i remember the sh- the horror of that in in sleeping beauty when maleficent transforms and it's just the the sheer scale of it and the the spectacular colors and that's again like yeah, you know green
1: fire is really great
0: the the green yeah breathing that green fire and the prince with his sword and again that's you know structurally the whole movie is is you know is waiting for that to happen and so it's this this big release moment when you're watching it as a kid
1: yeah, and then you have um, Smaug, of course, of course, from the the Hobbit. Um, it wasn't when I read the Hobbit; it the movie wasn't out yet. Um, it, I think the movie came out in two thousand twelve, so I would have been fourteen. But I read it when I was like eleven. It was the first book that I ever read without anyone telling me to read it. Is that right? That's great. And I, I re- <laughs> it's the f- the first no- novel that I enjoy, like actively enjoying. And yeah, Smaug, and then later, of course, in the movies. Smaug, I think one of the better parts of the the Hobbit trilogy,
0: probably the definitely. best. Agreed, yeah. And
1: one of the most impressive. I think it's up there with like Davy Jones and Thanos for just one of the greatest CGI creations in terms of characters. So another really impressive thing. And then you have, speaking of great effects, uh, you have uh, Vermithrax from Dragon Slayer, another great great dragon brought to life not with CGI but with like puppet work and and uh, motion, not motion capture. What's it called? claymation and stuff like that so that's just you can't beat that the old school effects uh, another movie again i couldn't tell you what that movie is about i only remember <laughs> the dragon verbothrax at the end the dragons with the and highlights another dragon uh i'm sorry i have to do this to you Emmett. but there's the dragon from shrek
0: <laughs> i had no i had no idea until i made fun of shrek online that shrek was as beloved as it is clearly clearly this I don't is on me much for
1: shrek one Hmm? I I like Shrek 2. I think Shrek 2 is good. Shrek 2 I remember liking
0: actually cuz that's that's like a big that's a big weird comedy with a lot of a lot of strange oh, memorable yeah. scenes in it cuz I, I yeah I remember that one more. But yes, I but even I still like the, you know, dra- Dragon Castle in a Volcano, Sign Me Up. I'm I'm, I'm always there for that. And the yes, Classic
1: Prince's guarded by a dragon it's you can't beat it you can't beat the classics
0: for sure and and smaug has his classic a uh, horde of gold that's i'm sure that's the mm. first time i probably encountered that uh well-worn idea as a kid and yeah i was i was always uh there's that that great bit in the novel of the hobbit where bilbo first is going into the mountain and uh, it's either he hears smaug or he smells smaug and he's he there's a moment where he stops And Tolkien writes that that was the hardest part, like nothing after that was nearly as hard for Bilbo as just deciding to go on after he first realized what it was he was going to be dealing with.
1: In the book, it says there was the glow of Smaug. The glow, yep. This this kind of like, you can really imagine this like gloomy, mysterious light that really speaks to the the kind of like mysteriousness, otherworldliness that is really common to dragons in general. But the Tolkien also really leaned into with Smaug that I'm going to talk about that later because i've I've got a lot of stuff about that (laughs) sure sure. no but outline
0: absolutely but even 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 before even when you're a kid even before you learn more about it, it has that yeah you can you can imagine like a almost like a candle in the darkness and then it gets bigger and bigger and it's just it's terrifying but also beautiful and also alluring and that's emphasized in the movie too i love that bit in the hobbit that i think they capture well where as terrified as bilbo is he's not really lying when he says smaug is glorious and magnificent like he is Taken aback by the awe and, and size of him, and it's like nothing else he's ever encountered, and that's how Tolkien wants you to feel about the dragons as well when you're reading it. Because as yeah, he thinks that it's it's uh, one of the the wildest things their brains has, has, has ever come up with. But yeah, so that's that's kind of the the childish perspective on the on the wonder and glory of dragons. But um, so once once you once you started getting older, and once you started reading more, what did dragons? Uh, how did dragons start to change in your mind?
1: Uh, well, as I started going to uni, I actually studied English as one of my majors. And once you get into reading mythology, especially if you if you study English, sooner or later you are going to have to read Beowulf, because it's just it's the big mythological you know epic sure of course poem that that is yes it, it, countless um, countless adaptations. None of them good. <laughs> right. That's the, it's hu- the it's one a thing, a thing they have in common. It's a to make good. Because it's, it's mythology. It's not like a novel. Or anything. Right. Exactly. But it's it's one of the oldest dragons, one of the most famous dragons, is the dragon from Beowulf. It doesn't actually have a name. Most people in like academia refer to it as Beowulf Spain, because obviously it kills Beowulf at the end. Spoilers, spoiler alert. <laughs> as I got into Beowulf, I actually wrote a paper about Beowulf in university and it kind of got me thinking about smaug again because where beowulf is kind of the most famous dragon of mythology smaug i think is the most famous dragon of the fantasy literature genre it's kind of like the you know no one's ever topped smaug smaug is the greatest dragon that in my opinion was ever ever created <laughs> page, and it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty hard to talk. and the reason for that is uh, because tolkien took inspiration from beowulf but he improved on beowulf's bane the dragon in in ways that he 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 um where he saw room for improvement so i mean beowulf obviously is this old story about the famous danish king beowulf who is the leader of the spear danes and he has to fight three monsters he fights the monster grendel which is a kind of humanoid ogre kind of kind of thing and then he fights grendel's mother and then in his third and final duel which happens after he's ruled for many many decades uh, he fights the dragon uh, that has no name. And it's very reminiscent of of The Hobbit. You can see a lot of similarities, because The Hobbit obviously is a tale about a bunch of dwarves who have to reclaim their ancient lost homeland from this dragon Smaug, who stole all their treasure. And both Smaug and Beowulf Spain are what you call hoarding dragons. So their whole thing is that they see treasure, they sleep on it, they guard it, And then in what happens in Beowulf is a thief, is a slave who escapes from his master, sneaks into this funeral mound that the dragon is in, and steals a cup. And this the dragon goes into like a a wild rage, and starts setting all the surrounding lands on fire. And this is when Beowulf, of course, he's the king. He has to step in. He sees his chance for like one last epic duel before he goes out swinging. (laughs) So he goes and takes down uh, the dragon. And then in the Hobbit. Very similar story. The Hobbit is almost people have called it a retelling of Beowulf mm-hmm. but from the thief's perspective. <laughs> sure, because you have Bilbo, Bilbo who sneaks into the the Erebor, and he steals a cup to prove to the the, you know, the, the company that he is a, g- a good burglar, I guess, so he doesn't come back empty-handed. And same thing happens with Smaug. He wakes up, he feels stolen from. He he's in this in this rage, and he goes after the people of Lake Town. Um where the stories kind of differ, what I always found interesting is that Beowulf is obviously the protagonist of, of the the poem Beowulf, and he's the one who takes down the dragons. He's got some help from, from Wiglaf, his his like squire banner barra guy. But he really does it alone. But in The Hobbit, it's not Bilbo who kills the dragon, it's not the protagonist, it's this guy Bard, who's introduced to the story like three paragraphs <laughs> before he takes down his Yep. Very in a very Tolkien esque fashion. And I always want because there is that bit in, in The Hobbit where Smaug has a nightmare about being slain by a tiny warrior with a sword, exactly the same way that Beowulf Spain was killed in the poem. So it's almost like Tolkien initially wanted Bilbo to be the dragon slayer, but then decided it to be barred. And I think it's got something to do with Tolkien wanted Smaug to go out like, I think he didn't want... Smaug to be killed by like some random little <laughs> hobbit. I <laughs> think Smaug deserved more than that. Sure. <laughs> because uh, Tolkien has this famous lecture where he talks about how the monsters are really important to reading Beowulf, the poem. And one of the reasons why the last monster was a dragon, because it is the dragon is the greatest foe that anyone could face. So by killing the dragon, Beowulf cements himself as the ultimate worthy king and hero. And that's why I think in The Hobbit you have Bard come in, because Bard is descendant from the Numenorian kings. So Bard is a much more worthy dragon slayer than, than Bilbo. So, where in Beowulf, the dragon was kind of introduced to su- supply the protagonist with a worthy end, I think Tolkien shoehorned Bard into The Hobbit to give Smaug a worthy end, because he really thought a lot about his dragon and wanted him to have a worthy dragon's death not just some little hobbit with a sword killing him.
0: That's fascinating and that that gets into something I think is interesting about dragons is that they they're such good markers for how what we want from stories has changed over time and from what what we demand from a a creature like this because as as you say there you know Beowulf has some some famously terrible movie adaptations and I think part of it is just that there's, you know, the, a lot of the movie making business, a lot of the, the screenwriting business is built around the, the psychological motivation of a given character and making that central. And that's really just not, even from my, you know, half educated perspective, that's just not how a lot of myths work structurally. And that's not really the appeal. And that's not what they're for. So translating that becomes like, Oh, we got to make Beowulf relatable to a modern audience. And it's like, you're, that's, you know, That's so counter to the the concept that it just kind of falls apart. And uh, it's interesting to talk about Tolkien in that regard because although Tolkien is considered by many to be old-fashioned now, at the time, you can see him working through that problem. And that's why – one of the reasons I think it's so great to have Beowulf from the burglar's perspective because – I think that's in part Tolkien going Bilbo Baggins is a is a is a character that modern audiences can like and kids can like and and relate to and and you know empathize with and his underdog perspective is actually a a, a hook a, an appeal for a lot of modern audiences but at the same time he's still got as you say this almost mythological love for the dragon itself and the dragon can't just be the antagonist to be killed by the protagonist no there's still they have this importance and this weight and this heft for him so he he has to invent a character to kill them even though yeah i've i've heard from you know a lot of people that that's that's confusing or off-putting to them in the hobbit when this guy bard shows up and kills smog and i think it's interesting to consider that that's tolkien wrestling with some very different storytelling traditions and trying to make them all fit and i think that's that's mm-hmm. really interesting
1: he tried to marry that relatable got to have a relatable character with you got to have the dragon go out you know a worthy a worthy dragon slayer and a worthy dragon's death and i think it's kind of works for what for what he was working with and it's also really interesting what you said about how he tried to modernize some of those mythological things that didn't quite work for him because that's another big thing with with tolkien people say oh now he's old fashioned but well he certainly took some of the things from the beowulf dragon some inspiration he also changed a lot of stuff he very famously criticized the beowulf dragon uh, as not being dragon enough <laughs> <laughs> he had this he had this uh, famous lecture held by by tolkien there's a trans- transcription of it it's called the monsters and the critics where he talked about how people have been reading beowulf wrong how it, how they should have put the monsters in the center of the analysis and that's when he sort of criticized the beowulf dragon he said he's not dragon enough and he called it Draconitas rather than Draco, because he's a scholar who uses fancy words. Of course. And what Draconitas means, it means dragon-like, or like basically dragon-ish, but not a proper real dragon. And it refers to dragons that are kind of used as an allegory of some kind, a personification of greed or, or malice or evil or something like that. And that is certainly something that we have in Beowulf Spain. The dragon in Beowulf is very much... Uh, described as a serpent serpent like it doesn't have legs and it is the ancient serpent it's 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 a metaphor for the devil basically for a kind of unpredictable amoral evil like a sickness that befalls Mm. the land and by killing it beowulf kind of shows that he not only can he defeat grendel which is just some you know some some forest monster who attacks the human world and grendel's mother but he can defeat this this otherworldly evil that's not really a human evil but something that is more like a, like a pest, like a plague and and then but then he says there's also Draco, not just draconis, and Draco is what he called a real worm with a beastial <laughs> life. He said uh, with a beastial life and thought of its own, and that's really the the crucial mm-hmm. the crucial thing, because to Tolkien, what really made a dragon a good dragon, as he said, was it not being morally good, but it having thought of its own, being cunning and intelligent and villainous. And you really see that in Smaug, because whereas the dragon in Beowulf, when the thief steals the cup, it's almost like the dragon has this like, like like an animalistic approach. It just goes into this wild rage and just starts burning random uh, villages and fields. But Smaug, when, when you have uh, Bilbo break into his mound, Tolkien actually gets into Smaug's head. And he talks about how Smaug has these nightmares of a tiny dragon slayer killing him. And Smaug thinks about, oh, I really should have blocked that entrance that I never bothered to block up before. And he thinks, oh, how dare they, they steal from me? You know, he feels offended. He, ha- he has a pride. And we really get the sense that it's not just, oh, I'm a dragon, therefore I must go into a rage when someone steals. It's a personal thing for him. And he deduces cleverly, because he's very smart, that it was the, the people from Laketown that Bilbo is associated with. So he directs his vengeance on that town specifically it's much more a calculated thing whereas the dragon and beowulf just sort of freaks out <laughs> that's really the the improvement mm-hmm. i think Tolkien made to smaug by giving him a voice he talks which the beowulf dragon doesn't do and it's almost like a like a person
0: yeah he's he's more recognizable and you you have that again the, the more kind of modernist approach to a character where you have this emblem of, of size and power and strength and wealth. So, okay, what's the thing that makes him small? What's the thing that makes him feel weak or fragile that is counter to that image? And Tolkien brings that to the fore and emphasizes, yeah, the the, the emotions of it. And that's something that I think people, a lot of authors have done with fairy tales because there's there's the the novel Grendel that came out in the 1970s, that was uh telling a more kind of trying to tell a more personal story through the eye through the lens of one of the monsters in Beowulf and uh, i think yeah gener- generationally speaking that kind of that process uh, gets gets handed down and then you kind of uh, end up of course with with uh, with George R, R. Martin so uh, how how, would, how do you think a song of ice and fire uh, approaches dragons
1: Yeah, well uh, obviously people always talk about how George R, R. Martin part of, of what makes George R. Martin's success is how he subverts traditional fantasy staples, like like dragons. And so obviously he has dragons in his story. And you have to look at, okay, what are the the staples of the fantasy genre? You obviously have Smaug, which is the big one. But actually, Smaug, in a lot of ways, is not really representative of of what most dragons in fantasy literature are like. Most of them really fall more into that dragon-ish category than being real worms the way that tolkien would describe them most of them are either they're just you know basically pack animals so they're in the story because people ride on them they're some kind of metaphor for super weapons very few dragons have that kind of really cunning intelligence and are really considered characters in the story or they even just introduced as like an obstacle so the hero has to kill some monster what do you do you make it a dragon. That's kind of what Tolkien talked about. That's what the Beowulf dragon is. He's a plot device to to uh you know, to give the, the king a worthy a worthy final final boss basically, like in a video game. Right. So what what Martin does, he, he does subvert a lot of those classical dragon things because obviously the dragons in his his lore are very heavily associated with Valyria. And Valyria sort of considered this height of civilization. They, they used dragons to build roads and buildings and Valyrian steel. So it's, it's really, dragons are a symbol of culture and civilization. Whereas in most fantasy or like just mythology in general, dragons are considered to be something that, you know, lures at the edge of maps. Here be dragons. It's something that, we're, we're away from civilization, where it's like, because obviously you have Smaug, he lives in his desolation. The dragon in Beowulf is described to live in the wilderness in a funeral mound, but the dragons in in Westeros they are considered when they were alive and when they were plentiful. That's when civilization really thrived the most, which is an interesting thing.
0: Yeah, that's a f- I never really thought about that before, and that's a fascinating distinction that we associate dragons with ruin because you know that is tend to that tends to be what they leave behind when they freak out, as you said about the the one in Beowulf. But what an interesting tension to take this creature, capable of so much destruction, and put it in a context where the people harnessing them are able to do so for great power. And I think that's that's that that that's a, I think an interesting way to start incorporating dragons uh, back into human power rather than having them purely as a, a disruption of it. And that that that's that's an interesting way to to build on that. George famously was not. F- considering using literal dragons uh, at first that it was relatively late in the process that he decided that the, the Targaryens that he was going to have Daenerys literally bring the dragons back what do you think about that do you think do you think that was the right call or what do you think a, a song of ice and fire uh, would be like without uh, having literal dragons
1: I mean the thing is the dragons have kind of become like the the selling point of more so the show than the books but I can see why George R. R. Martin, because obviously he started out wanting it to be very quote-unquote realistic. So he want, he didn't want a lot of magic and, and and all that stuff. But he couldn't help himself to still put the dragons in. And I think part of that is just because dragons are really, really cool. And they, True. they just get you a lot of possibilities. And you can have that kind of subversion that he's going for by still Im- including them. Because obviously his dragons aren't like, Common, like fantasy talking dragons that have magical powers and stuff. They're they're really more. First of all, they're not technically dragons by like the official heraldic definition. They would be considered wyverns or wyverns because they only have four limbs. Because as George himself said, it's more realistic. There's no animal in the real world that has both four legs and two wings. So that's why he made them more like bat-like. And he also always takes care to like compare them to real animals like snakes when he describes their movements and what they look like. So yeah, I mean, I think he was just going for. There is something of like a metaphor in there because I think he's talked about before that the the dragons are basically like the the super weapon, the the atomic bomb of of Westeros. But they're also a lot more than that, which we're also going to get into.
0: He's just struck on something there where they are an emblem of of power, and and you know they can be used as as force multipliers or to to change the stakes of a conflict. But they're they're also alive. In a way that uh, obviously is different from a, from a technological terror, so I think it's th- that that's an interesting uh, kind of mixture, and I think you can see that in uh, how they function for the for the Targaryens from what we've learned of them, from what they're mentioned in the Song of Ice and Fire, and then more from the World Book and from Fire and Blood in this way where. Uh, as you say, they're they're connected to technology. They're connected to the roads and the Valyrian steel and the overall self conception of of House Targaryen is we're, we're you know we're we are the ambassadors of civilization to Westeros. Basically, we are we are here to to elevate you people as as, as they think about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but at the same time. The dragons, and so the dragons uh, make that possible, or make that more credible. Like it's easier to act like gods if you got dragons standing next to you. It kind of kind of helps sell it politically. But at the same time, those dragons, because they are creatures, and because they're emotionally bonded with the people who ride them, like there is the potential for them to reveal the instability of the Targaryens as well. So, uh, when, when you look at the, the, the backstory of, of, of uh, House Targaryen, do, do you think that lines up with, uh, with previous mythological incarnations, or what do you think George is doing differently there?
1: Well, with the backstory of the, of the Targaryens, what's really interesting is that the, the dragons, they are kind of used as, as this peacekeeping thing more than a war machine. It's the threat of them that keeps everyone in line, basically. And there are also most of the like atrocities that are committed by Dragonfire—the destruction of Harrenhal or all of the carnage in the Dance of Dragons—it all comes down to human cruelty because it's the humans riding the dragons. That's true. Who are causing the destructions? The dragons are the dragons in the Song of Ice and Fire. They are really just basically like dogs. <laughs> they're they like the direwolves, just much bigger. That's yeah, true. They can follow commands. They have a bond with the people that "quote unquote" own them, but they're not—they're not evil. You know, Drogon wouldn't go into like a rampage and, and burn a village because someone stole a piece of jewelry they're not that they're just they re- they're very much just animals, which is what makes them really different and original compared to a lot of, a lot of dragons in mythology because a lot of fantasy authors feel the need to give them have them be something more than that. Dragons have very often in in mythology and literature been used to kind of blur that line between human and animal mm-hmm. and that line I feel like doesn't really exist. In, this, in the song of ice and fire, I feel like the dragons are very much. Uh, it's made clear that they're just amoral animals. They, they, there's that bit in Dasnak's pit when Drogon attacks, and he f- starts feeding on that boar. And it says in the text that he, that the dragon, did not, you know didn't care whether he was eating the boar or Bazina. the the woman who killed him. So it's just, yeah, they they don't care. They just they're just animals, and they're not good. They're not bad. And so, yeah, it's, it's 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 kind of it's this thing where they're tools kind of for the powerful. But at the same time, George kind of manages to still have them have a certain level of agency and kind of personality in a way, just like you would have with like a domesticated animal like a dog.
0: Yes, yes. And it's uh, you're, you're bringing up the the blurring between human and animal. And there are the Targaryens who, who think they can not only bring dragons back, but become dragons themselves, basically. And those attempts, of course, are miserable failures. And <laughs> yeah. and, you know, what those uh, you know, well, I think that what those attempts are really about is trying to escape death. Like that's really what the Mad King and Arian Brightflame Flame wanted to do. But dragons die too, and i you know I was thinking when we were talking about those previous stories. It struck me that like you know the the climax of those stories is the death of a dragon. Like that's the kind of thing that has to happen in Beowulf and the Hobbit. But so how, how does that work differently? Do you think in, in George R. R. Martin's hands?
1: Well, the thing is, with uh, Song of Ice and Fire starts off with the dragons being dead, whereas the Hobbit and and Beowulf starts out with there is a dragon and we need to get rid of it because they're dangerous and in the song of ice and fire it's like we need to get them back <laughs> right <laughs> i mean house targaryen wants them back because they they are this they're not just a symbol of power they're kind of their tool of power because without them they have no real means to enforce that that ubermensch uh, pr- imagery that they that they that they think of themselves as and so even like but even common people are kind of like there's sir alan uh, sir alan of penitry boasts that he saw the last living dragon in, in king's landing they're kind of these awe inspiring creatures and their dying is considered a tragic event in the the lore of a song of ice and fire like no one's going to shed a tear for smaug <laughs> of course now spain it's it's a pretty good thing that there are no more dragons i think in, in middle earth most of the people would agree but in westeros it's it's this thing where the dying of the dragons is this, this tragedy that has befallen House Targaryen and the world that's led to the dying down of magic. And it wasn't like this thing where Oh, some great heroic dragon slayer came forth and slayed the last dragons. It was they they kind of crew grew tinier and tinier. Uh they were killed by the Maesters, who are these old men, and they were killed by a mob of angry peasants. So it's it's a really clever subversion where it's like this is not like some heroic thing like killing dragons is kind of considered to be evil because they're not vicious creatures they're just animals and the, the wrath of the 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 mob in king's landing at the end of the dance of dragons should have been directed at rainera it wasn't the dragon's fault that there was a war you know yep
0: they're just the symbol of it and yeah that's they're they're framed as like a, a miracle and when you kill them then you live in a world that doesn't have that miracle anymore And part of it has to do with, I think, a a kind of a cynical distrust of human power. So like, you know, it's not like we can get rid of the dragons and then the realm will be fine. Like, you know, we're we're still suffering. But there's also like this sense of like... uh, wonders like the dragons is what made life worth living. And even if it's even if we have to overlook so much to do that, we need stuff to believe in. Like there's that bit I love with Stannis where he's being tempted into sacrificing Edric Storm to bring the dragons back and he just he remembers that like Robert Took down the skulls, but he couldn't bear to have them destroyed because there was just something so powerful about them. And he thinks to himself, dragon wings over Westeros. There would be such a, and he never finishes that sentence because Davos cuts him off. But you kind of know what he's going to say. He's going to say wonder and terror. He's going to say this awe, this, this sense of sublime, uh, a miracle. And that, like Tyrion says, that he doesn't believe in magic, he believes in what like you know swords and money and like that's that's his world, and it's just kind of dingy and like it's just there's no miracles in it so like he's and he says, you know i dragons used to exist, and so there's there's that lure of wanting that that world back and i i I agree it's really interesting that he starts with that instead of the dragon as the present day foe to be defeated that's really interesting
1: even after they're brought back it's not like Smaug. The first time we see Smaug in *The Hobbit*, he's this big, gloomy, evil uh, villain. But we see the dragons; they start out as these tiny, like cat-sized hatchlings, drinking milk from Danny's breasts like they're babies. And throughout, like the entire second book, of Clash of Kings*, it's like uh, a direct subversion of the of the classic dragon guarding the princess thing, because it's Daenerys who has to guard the dragons, because everyone wants them and they can't defend themselves because they're tiny so that's another way that george really makes you really sympathize for the dragons because you see them as these just tiny cute little they really nailed it in the show too but having them almost like human human baby like noises and stuff they are really i think a lot of george's writing is inspired well not perhaps directly inspired but influenced by this changing perspective on animal rights that sort of came up in the twentieth century. That's interesting. Where he really tries to present the dragons as they're creatures. You know, he makes it very, very clear that they're amoral, like they kill children. But it's not really their fault. They don't do it out of malice. And he presents them still as creatures that are worthy of protection protection and and that inspire wonderment. And most of the quote unquote dragon slayers that crop up in the story as readers we don't really root for them, like the guy who grabs a spear and tries to take down Drogon and we people. Like, hey, don't do that, <laughs> you know? It's Drogon. We like we like Drogon. He's Danny's child. You know, they're named for her dead relatives. They're really there's a really close emotional bond. So I know a lot of people say that the dragons are the metaphor for the nu- nuclear weapons, but this there's they are a lot more than that. Danny has really genuine connections to the dragon, emotional connections, and that's what really I think. Makes the dragons in Game of Thrones so interesting that they are at once your average animal—not average, but they're they're more than animals. But then, on the other hand, there is still that there is a, a a touch of magic magic to them that that cannot be denied. You know that their fire has the same color as the, their scales. There seems to be something of like a supernatural mental bond between Targaryens and their dragons, the, the way you have with the Starks and the direwolves. So there is a bit of that, but it never goes into, like, they never... It's not like, you know, John and Ghost ever, like, talk to each other or anything like that. It doesn't go that far. It's it's just a a, mis- a mysterious bond between between these dragons and, and Danny that, that makes them... It makes readers care about them, but it doesn't make them human... It doesn't humanize them in any way.
0: Yes, I think that's exactly right. That's a really specific balance to reach, where... They're not right. They are rooted in the emotions of the character, and there is a a supernatural bond. But you can see George like worrying about it getting silly and hokey if suddenly Drogon is forming sentences in Danny's minds. Like that would be that would be too much. And and then it becomes interesting when other characters have to relate to them, like like uh, like Quentin, whose death very much has the feel of like like an animal accident. You know what I mean? Like someone who got into a tiger cage that they shouldn't have. There's folks who go out and hang out with grizzly bears and think they can, you know, get away with that and <laughs> end up end up suffering for it. And that's kinda more what it feels like is happening with Quentin. Like he's he's just he's un he's just untrained for what he's dealing with. And then for Danny there's 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 something much more mystical going on. But a lot of it is about perspective and then what those dragons will look like when she when she brings them back to Westeros. And I think that's a bittersweet thing with Danny in general. Is that, is that we're the only ones reading her story. So no one in Westeros like, saw the dragons when they were small and cute. You know what I mean? Like no one over there forged exactly, that bond yeah. with them. Only Danny and we did. So then when she brings them there, they will look like just super weapons to average person in the Stormlands.
1: That is very true. And it's also another thing that I think is interesting that George introduces is that he doesn't go that route that a lot of stories like Aragon, for example, have where Danny has full control of the dragons, so they're like her friends, because they still they act up. They're teenagers, you know. They're rebellious. <laughs> yeah, and uh, she doesn't fully control them, and she thinks to herself that them. Even Danny calls them monsters. She says they are monsters, and if I'm their mother, then so am I. So he introduces that kind of thing where, sure, they are. You know, we we like them in in the sense that we have bonds with them. We saw them growing up. But at the end of the day, a dragon can really only bring destruction because it's either you burn down your enemy's castle or you use him as an intimidation for people to keep them in line. So really no no good can come of using them. I know Danny has usually good intentions, but the kind of power that can be enforced with dragons is not one that keeps a realm stable for a long time. And I think that is a trend that goes through the entire reign of House Targaryen. Because as soon as those things were gone. <laughs> things went downhill pretty quickly. And even while they are around. Yeah they may inspire wonderment. And, and fascination. But at the end of the day. It's still always that. You know that, that nuclear bomb type thing. Where I will destroy you. If you don't. If you don't uh, comply. And that is a thing that Danny has to wrestle with. And I think part of her story is just her realising. That there is no. Um middle ground with that you cannot use a dragon to make peace you can only use them to destroy things or to intimidate people and this is part i think also why george might might have thought to to keep them because obviously the, the way that danny's character will go i think and the show has leaned that way rereading her chapters it kind of leans that way is that danny will ultimately end up realizing that you can't really fix the kind of broken system that she's dealing with, you know this the system of speed slavery or oppression, you know she tries the diplomatic approach, she tries locking the dragons up. that doesn't work, and I think at the end of the day she's going to realize that in order for really fundamental change to happen, the wheel will have to be broken. I know that's not really a line from both <laughs> it's in the show. I'm not going to stop the wheel, I'm going to break the wheel. And uh, it's when when she's going to arrive at Westeros and no one's going to want her there because they have Aegon. They already have their returned Targaryen prince who didn't come with scary fire-breathing monsters and eunuchs and Dothraki horse warriors. So it's like, well, it's not a great look and no one will want her there. And I think she's going to come to realize that Westeros isn't really all that different from Marine. Sure, they might not have technically have slavery, but at the end of the day, it's the same, the same kind of oppression and it's that same kind of rejection of her quote-unquote help. And so she's going to turn to dragon fire and she's going to set some people on fire and destroy some things and burn down things. And it's not really going to be the dragon's fault. Again, it's it's a, it's a human thing. The dragons are just the tools for the humans who kind of control them to enact their their cruelties, whatever, that, whatever those are.
0: I, I I loved all of that. I especially agree with that you can't make peace ultimately with 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 dragons, and that I think is something that connects all the different uh, versions of them that we're talking about. That you that Danny is 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 trying to make a mythological creature exist in the psychological political world, and she's having difficulty mm-hmm. crossing that bridge. That that these yeah, but the dragons at the end of the day are are there as as emblems of awe. And that I think one of the things that's interesting for her Miranese plot is that you can't run a government on awe. Like you can... Yeah,
1: exactly. Like you yeah. still have
0: to get up the next day after you've shocked and awed people and keep going. And so they just, they they don't necessarily fit into that world. And so I think there, there is something bittersweet about that. And that like the dragons are... You know, like the apex of nature, and they're like the ultimate predator, and they're like gods themselves, but there's no place for them. There's no yeah, that's kind of place where to fit in. I actually
1: don't like. Um, I'm not a huge fan of good dragons. Not good dragons the way Tolkien says good dragons. I mean, nice dragons. Hearted, yeah, okay. Gentle dragons. Because, mm-hmm. like, what's the point of being able to breathe fire if you're going to be a nice, kind hearted
0: <laughs> soul?
1: And I, I know a lot of that is uh, influenced from. Eastern cultures and those dragons very often don't even breathe fire. I think a lot of those dragons are water dragons. Sure. So that's a whole different thing. Yes. I'm, tr- I'm talking like the, the the dragon from like the never ending Story or something like that. But if you have a real like four legs, two wings, fire breathing, scaled dragon, and they're all like nice and 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 uh, and it doesn't kind of work because it, it, they are still that 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 symbol of just fiery terror and and destruction and yeah and i think it's it's like in the books like uh, leaf tells bran in the world that the humans are building there's no place for us and the same kind of applies not only to the direwolves and the children of the forest but also to the dragons and by the end of A dream of spring which will definitely come out (laughs) yes there will probably not be any dragons left or maybe just drogon but but one dragon does not you know can't repopulate the earth and yeah, there is a point there that George is definitely trying to make that they just maybe the whole reason he introduced them in the first place is to make the point that they don't fit with his world.
0: That's a great way of putting it. And like even in even in Tolkien's world, Gandalf says at one point, you know, if there were still big dragons around, they could probably they could maybe take care of the One Ring for us. But they're gone. So and it's so 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 often dragons uh, end up standing in for for the past in that way, and that the you know the future of the world. Belongs to the likes of, of Varus and Littlefinger, and, um, <laughs> and right, exactly. <laughs> like that, that kind of power is like what you know you well, see under the surface. The
1: dragons to come back, <laughs> right?
0: Or like, or like a place like Bravos, you know, made in the in the wake of yeah. Valyria. Which, of course, you know, Bravos isn't exactly a utopia, but it's like here's here are glimpses of a world that isn't is not built around a god made flesh. And that's that's what the dragons are for so many people in this world, and you kind of you get the the bittersweetness of, of of that passing away.
1: Yeah, I mean, God made flesh. It's like they are it's Quaith says they're fire made flesh, they, and fire cannot build things. Fire can only destroy things, and it cannot be controlled. And I think that's the point that Quaith is trying to make with Danny, of thinking that you can control them or use them for good is foolish. You either lean into that fire and blood Targaryen vibe. Or things are just not going to work out for you. That's like the whole... I've been rereading her last chapter in A a Dance with Dragons for my thesis. And that's all of these weird apparitions from her past. That's what I'm trying to tell her. You're a dragon. Be a dragon. Like Olena said in the show. There's really no way around it. You have them. And if you're going to use them, it's going to end up with a lot of charred bones.
0: I love that chapter. And that is, I think, the, the chapter that really expresses what george is going for yeah with his dragons because it's it's just danny and drogon for like the first time in her story there's no one else around there's no civilization she's trying to fit into there's no one she's trying to negotiate with there's no one trying to marry her it's just her and her brain and the dragon and that's and that
1: it ends with her standing next to the dragon with the dothraki showing up and it is that that symbol of power Mm Mm-hmm that that might that the dothraki really respect and i think it's that whole going back to the dothraki with their respect for strength that is going to ultimately make danny lean more into the i am a dragon the mother of dragons i'm going to use the dragons
0: if humanity really is this bad then i just have to be something other than human and i think i think you i think the the greatness of her character is you can see absolutely why she has reached that conclusion even if you recoil from that decision and that the dragon is just a perfect uh, a vessel for that.
1: It wouldn't be the same if she just ended up burning all the cities with armies and ordering her soldiers to kill people. Yes. That's why you need the dragons in there. I totally agree. Really nail, nail
0: her that home. I know? totally agree. Even if even if like materially it would have the same effect, it's it's different in terms of her transformation into something different. That's what the dragons are for her. So uh, I think that's uh, just going to about wrap us up for our episode on dragons. Uh, this was a blast. Thanks so much, Yogi, for coming on. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks again for having me on. I mean, as I said at the beginning, great fan, great insights. It's very glad that I got to contribute and fill in for Jeff, even if I didn't do any funny voices. <laughs>
0: well, uh, we'll uh, I'll have to try out my own funny voices for our next guest and, and, and fail miserably, no doubt. But um, so uh, tell people uh, where they can uh, where they can find you online.
1: Well, I mean, I do actually also have a podcast. It's called Through the moon door. Um, It's been kind of on a bit of a hiatus lately. I sort of talk about whatever I feel like talking about. I've had lots of great guests on. Amy Blackfire. Uh, I've had Micah on from the Planet Earth podcast. I've had Lo. And you can find it on YouTube. And through the moon Door. you can find me at, on Twitter. At, it's at yogi98. Yogi, I think, is spelled with a capital J and you can also find me I have another podcast that's also on hiatus that one's called Troy Talk has nothing to do with the song of Fire. most people here will not care for it but it is about me chronicling the discography of Australian pop sensation Troy Savan, one song at a time so if you happen to be a fan of Troy Savan, check it out you can find it on YouTube at, at Troy Talk you can find it on Anchor Spotify all those things same goes for the other podcasts as well that's it I think Thanks
0: for having me. Of course. Well, that is delightful. Um, and thanks, as always, folks, for listening. Uh, you can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. We appreciate it. it helps folks find us. You can check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com/nodcasta s o i A-S-O-I-A-F where patrons get early access to our episodes and bonus episodes and uh, merch and a whole bunch of good things. Can follow us on Twitter at NauticastASOIAF. Shoot us an email at NauticastASOIAF at gmail.com. So thanks again for listening, and we will see you next week.